Welcome to Beyond the Crucible. I'm Warwick Fairfax, the founder of Beyond the Crucible. Walt Disney teaches us to trust ourselves and our vision. He anchored his vision in the things he was most passionate about, his gifting. He wanted to bring entertainment to families and children. He loved telling stories. He had a vivid imagination. He had you know, that gift of storytelling, animation, imagination. So he knew that he was good at this. He believed in himself. He believed in his vision. And he wouldn't let naysayers just get him down. Trusting ourselves and our vision, even especially when naysayers offer all sorts of reasons designed to dissuade us from pursuing it. Walt Disney did not let the doubts of others or the crucibles he encountered stop him from pursuing his life of significance. Hi, I'm Gary Schneeberger, co-host of the show. This week, in the latest episode of our series within the show, Stories from the Book Crucible Leadership, Warwick and I discuss Disney's refusal to let his vision get derailed and how it resulted in seismic changes in entertainment and culture across the globe. From bouncing forward after being swindled out of his first comic creation, Oswald the Lucky Rabbit, to envisioning a family-friendly theme park at a time when the places were seedy and suspect, a decision that led to the creation of Disneyland, Walt Disney was, as Warwick says, never one to give up. That's why, Warwick concludes, we'd all do well to summon the same pluck in bringing our visions to reality. This week's, this month's exploration is Walt Disney on the resilience of a vision. And if you've if you've listened to the show even a few times, you know that Warwick is very passionate uh, about Mr. Disney and about the things that Mr. Disney can teach us about vision. So just to level set you about the series, um, this does indeed come from Warwick's book, Crucible Leadership. It's a Wall Street Journal bestseller that was released in 2022. It's an important book because it's the book that birthed the brand beyond the Crucible, which used to be called Crucible Leadership, like the book. Without the book, there would be no podcast, but no, um, we're here. You're, you're, you're listening to us and you're watching us because this book exists. Um, each month in what we're calling this series within a show, we feature one story from the book, one of the people that Warwick profiles in the book, spotlighting one key learning that helped the subject of the story overcome a crucible, and it can help you do the very same thing when you apply the principle. So, that's why we do it in general, and you'll discover in this episode why we're talking about Walt Disney and what he can teach us about the resiliency uh, of a vision. So I'll begin with that question, Warwick. Why Walt Disney? Why this subject? It's not only featured in your book. You've cited Disney for the resilience of his vision on the show more than a couple of times. Why Disney? Why is that such a critical story for you and for listeners? You know, what I love about Walt Disney is his sense of wonder, his willingness to try, never say die. Um, he was a visionary. He had this incredible imagination. And I've sort of used the term, he was a serial visionary. Mm. He didn't have this 50-year vision of, you know, yet yeah, we're going to have cartoons and then movies, uh, Disneyland, you know, Disney World. It wasn't like that. 
he had you know one vision you know what's the next right vision if you will and he'd bring that to reality so and he was very focused on what he pursued uh, his visions were never small but they were you know in hindsight uh, like his early vision to produce animated uh, cartoons that told better stories that was big for him in hindsight we think well that's Okay, that's a good vision, but it's a doable vision. But his visions were anchored in what he felt was the next right move. You know, often we can get intimidated by Walt Disney side visions. We've right. got to remember, he didn't have this 50-year millennial vision. He had sort of, what's the next right move for me? What do I feel passionate about? You know, how is it anchored in what I'm good at? Um, what I feel like the market needs, what the world needs. He pursued visions, you know, one step at a time. The other thing about Walt Disney, as we'll see, he was never one to let obstacles and setbacks get him down, or even the naysayers, which were many, because everything right. he did was was new. So obstacles, naysayers, he just kept kept going. He was passionate about what he did, and um, he just kept going and one vision at a time. So it's a, it's a lot we can learn from Walt Disney. Right, because you've said many times on the show, right, it's it's take the next right step. We talk about that all the time. And that's really with everything that we do, but certainly with vision, what's the next What's the next right vision? And it just so happens, um, as you've said, his visions weren't small, right? I mean, his visions were, were were a little bigger than, you know, let's have a block party, right? I mean, he he had a he had a he had a global block party in some of the things, some of the things that he did. And he also had his share of crucibles that impacted his vision, but didn't cancel out his vision. In other words, um, his vision moved on through them. He adjusted as he went on and Really, the the first uh, big crucible that we're going to talk about, and we're not saying it's the first crucible Walt Disney had. We don't know every crucible. I'm sure, like many of us, he had a lot of crucibles. But the one that stands out to you that you really unpacked in the book that's fascinating is, uh, well, I'll let you tell it. I won't even say it. You you tell what that first big crucible was for Mr. Disney. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, just a little background about Walt Disney. Yeah, Walt Disney was born in Chicago in 1901. But he spent his early years on a farm in Marceline, Missouri. And he wasn't there maybe, I don't know, four or five years. He was pretty young. But that was defining. It was a farm uh, where, he, where he grew up for those early years. And in fact, when you look at Main Street in Disneyland, it was modeled after the town that he spent his early mm -hmm. years in Marceline, Missouri. So the whole farm animals, uh, the love of, uh, of the rural life. That was very influential. So his family ended up moving to Kansas City where uh, Walt Disney spent a lot of his time growing up. And he began making cartoons. Initially, he sold them to uh, local theaters and his early cartoons were called laughograms, believe it or not. <laughs> Laugh-o-grams. I guess in, in the 20s, that was probably very catchy. Um, <laughs> so... Um, you know, along with his brother Roy, he ended up launching uh, Disney Brothers Studio in 1923. So he began hiring a bunch of animators and making some cartoons, black and white at the time. And uh, in 1928, he was asked by Universal Pictures to make a series about a rabbit. I guess back then, I guess they told you, you know, make a cartoon about this animal and kind of off you went. So he came up with this idea of Oswald the Lucky Rabbit. So it became a quick success. And so that same year, 1928, Disney headed to New York to renegotiate a, a new contract with his distributor. 
And so when he got there, he found out that that distributor had hired away virtually all of his animators. And not only that, but he put some fine print in the document in the legal agreement that said that Oswald the Lucky Rabbit was his property and not the property of Disney. You know, Walt Disney wasn't a lawyer, a business guy. He didn't see it. And so here he is, uh, you know, this is in the 20s, you know, uh, plane travel wasn't particularly, uh, commercial plane travel wasn't a common thing back then. So he takes the long train ride back to Southern California, which he was living uh, at, at the time. And on that train ride back with his wife, Lily, clearly I'm sure he was devastated. He was hurt. He probably felt betrayed by a lot of his employees that left um, and hide away by this unscrupulous distributor. He probably felt bad about being swindled out of Oswald the Lucky Rabbit. But rather than kind of feeling down or angry, or at least maybe he did, but he didn't let that stop him moving forward, he got out a yellow legal pad and he began drawing circles big ones, and then small ones. Mm. And so his wife, Lily, said, you know, uh, Walt, it looks like you're drawing a mouse. And Disney <laughs> said, I am. I've got this great idea. How about Mortimer Mouse? Catchy, huh? I'm obviously editorializing <laughs> a little bit. And his wife, Lily, replied, what about Mickey? And so uh, Walt said, you know, yeah, I kind of like that. So uh, well, obviously, it was smart that Walt listened to his wife. I'm not quite sure if Mortimer Mouse would have been quite the household name. Right. But that was how Mickey Mouse was born. And so, you know, we can learn a lot from Walt Disney. Obviously, he was devastated, felt betrayed, I'm sure, by his team members, his animators, and this distributor. But he did not let the obstacle or that setback stop him from moving on. He moved forward. And, you know, you look at... Um, Mickey Mouse, I mean, who's ever heard of Oswald the Lucky Rabbit? Everybody's heard of, uh, you know, Mickey Mouse. So it was a big setback, but uh, he did not let that define him, as we often say. Uh, he, his attitude is, okay, this is feels bad. It, I feel betrayed, I'm sure he probably felt, but what's next? How do we move forward? Right. And it and I happen to know this. I'll explain why I know this, but it it didn't take him long to do it either. I mean, as you indicate, on the on the train ride back, he's drawn circles, and his wife said, "Oh, it could be a, it's a mouse and Mortimer and Mickey and all that." But, but also in 1928, November the 18th, 1928, is when Steamboat Willie, the 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 first cartoon of Mickey with sound, came out. And I only know that work because I teased my father for decades that he was a year older than Mickey Mouse because my dad's birthday <laughs> was was November 18th of 1927 and and Disney launched Steamboat Willie the same year that he was swindled out of Oswald the Lucky Rabbit he he drafted Mickey Mouse he created some Mickey Mouse short cartoons and then he had one with sound all within less than a year that's remarkable to me not only was he not was he not stopped by it, but his momentum kept going and he worked quickly and well, given how successful Mickey Mouse came out to be. Boy, I mean, that is remarkable, Gary. I mean, that is a great point to um, highlight. The fact that he would have that setback of losing Oswald the Lucky Rapper that had had some success, and he comes out with Mickey Mouse and Steamboat Willie, the first Mickey Mouse cartoon the same year. It's just amazing. Who, who does that? I mean, that's bouncing back and moving forward at like light speed. I mean, right. it's, uh, 
It's truly amazing. Yeah, and back in a time before the internet and before all that stuff, I mean, he did it all just with his, with his, with his mind and his talents and his and his and his dare I say vision, um, and, and that's what we're talking about here is the resilience of Walt Disney's vision. And he didn't stop there when it came to being resilient in his vision. Mickey Mouse is out. Steamboat Willie is a success. Mickey Mouse is growing. But he still had more that he wanted to create. He had more to his vision that he wanted to bring to the people. And the thing that he moved to next, the thing that that was not all hailed by everybody is Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, right? Absolutely. You know, the thing about Walt Disney, he was never one to sit still, rest in his laurels. Hey, you know, Mickey Mouse is successful. I can just sit back, relax. So it's 1934. And by then, Walt Disney, he was a wealthy man. He was living in Southern California. He had a large house. He played polo, which apparently if you were a Hollywood star in the 30s, that's kind of what you did. You played polo. It was the thing to do. And he had a comfortable life. But he didn't just sit back and enjoy the good life. He had this vision of the world's first full-length cartoon feature, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Earlier, he had actually um, negotiated a contract with um, Technicolor to have uh, you know, a two-year head start on getting uh, color into, into animation. He was always one to push the envelope. Now, think back in 1934, nobody had ever made a full-length feature film, an animated feature film. The conventional wisdom is like, well, that won't work. They called it, I think, in the the media and, uh, you know, his circles, Disney's folly. Indeed, they did, yep. It'll never work. And it was not easy. It took three years and two million frames of film. I mean, it was very expensive, and he literally bet everything on that movie. You know, he bet the ranch, so to speak, probably bet his house, bet, bet, bet his polo ponies, or, you know, he bet everything, <laughs> you know, and he what? went into debt to make the movie. So, you know, three years later, it's December 1937, and Snow White opened in Los Angeles to a gala premiere. And it had some of the biggest stars of the day in Hollywood. Charlie Chaplin, Cary Grant, Jack Benny, Shirley Temple, and Ginger Rogers. It was a huge success. You know, Walt Disney, he bet it all on that movie, but he knew how to animate. He had a large team of incredible animators. He had success with Mickey Mouse. So, you know, he had some sense of, you know, I know how to tell stories through animation. He had uh, the skills. So he really believed that this would work. But there were many at the time that said, you know, oh, initially when you were going to do a color movie, what color is going to hurt their eyes? Nobody's going to pay attention to an hour and a half plus uh, animated movie that tells a story. People are used to kind of quick, snappy, minutes long. You know, it just, it didn't make any sense. But what's kind of amazing is it did work. Now, if you bring yourself back to 1937, People didn't know the story of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, right? I mean, it was probably some obscure kind of story somewhere, but it wasn't that well known. So you had a bunch of these stars. They were captivated by the movie. Some were even in tears. I mean, can you imagine, you know, a Cary Grant, uh, right. you know, Ginger Rogers, Charlie Chaplin in tears as they're watching this movie? I mean, it's just amazing, but it just shows you the power of Walt Disney he was willing to bet it all because he just, he just felt like, I know this is going to work. 
this will work. People will want this. It, yeah. You know, it's just going to work. And let's put it into, we haven't talked about this beforehand, but I want to put it into beyond the crucible context. Because what you're talking about, and I've heard you talk about this uh, privately and also on the show, the driving force behind Disney's passion for Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs was indeed, he thought that this was something people would benefit from, that people would love. He truly was dedicating his life to the service of others. He wanted to bring them the kind of entertainment, and we'll see it again when we talk in a little bit about another crucible he went through, about another aspect of his pers- you know, his uh, perseverance. But that's true, right? His reason behind this wasn't just to get more polo ponies, right? His reason behind this was to entertain the masses, and he thought he had a great way to do it that would stand the test of time, right? Absolutely. Uh, you know, as we'll see with some of his other things that he did, he loved um, entertaining children and families, giving them entertainment that would just tell stories that would take them away from their day-to-day life. I mean, you think of 1937, America, much of the world was still uh, coming out of the Depression. I don't think it really took World War II. I think most historians would say for the U.S. and a lot of the world to fully come out of the Depression. You know, life was not easy in the 30s for many people. But just to go to a movie and just for an hour and a half or so to just think about something different, to think about you know a story of challenge, a setback. Certainly, Snow White faced uh, right, you know right. setbacks from a stepmother, and uh, life was not easy. It turned worked out in the end, but you know it's it's a very engrossing story. You picture yourself never having seen this story. It's fun. It's humorous. Wonderful songs. Great story. You know, a heartbreak. A great ending, you know, love. I mean, it's it's a wonderful story. If you're in the middle of the Depression uh, or just coming out of it, it sort of takes you away from your day-to-day world, which may not be easy, and you can be entertained, uplifted, inspired. That's what he wanted to do, tell stories to inspire and uplift and entertain people. Yeah, and if that was the last thing that Walt Disney ever did, he could have put a, a flag in the ground, planted a flag in the ground, he had lived a life on purpose dedicated to serving others just through what he accomplished right through there. But he was not anywhere near done. Let me, to get back to the, for a second, Disney's folly on Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, right? Um, it, it cost $1.499 million to make. But as of right now, this is how much money it's made at the global box office. $184,925,000 and 486 bucks on the end of that. Uh, that's 123 times its production costs. It's been re-released three times in the U.S., most recently in um, uh, 1993. This movie is a, is, is beloved. It was a huge success. Disney's folly was anything but. Um, and that's not the first time, right, Warwick? That's not the first time that, that Disney would prove folks wrong. Um, as we move into the, the next aspect of his vision that he, that he came up with, that was immediately met with naysayers. That was immediately met with people who were like, what? The same thing that they said about, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, they said about the next development that you talk about in your book about his vision, and that's his vision for theme parks and how he wanted to completely transform the way both people looked at theme parks and the way they experienced theme parks. Talk about that. Yeah, absolutely, Gary. So, you know, we just left uh, Walt Disney in 1937 at the launch of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. A few years later, in the early 1940s, 
Walt Disney, um, he had two daughters who were young at the time. And he began thinking, wouldn't it be great to have a safe, clean environment where parents and children could come together and enjoy themselves? So he's thinking about his daughters and you know other people with young kids. And he started thinking about amusement parks. But amusement parks at the time, they were typically run-down places with you know Ferris wheels, creaky merry-go-rounds. There was alcohol. You know, people drank too much. Right. It just almost felt like a seedy, dirty place. It's just not the kind of place you want to bring kids to. And so, Walt Disney dreamt of something totally different. He dreamt of a theme park where you would charge admission to get in. It would be a fun place and a safe place, and it would be clean. To have a theme park right. that's clean, an amusement park that's, it's like an oxymoron. By definition, they're seedy, dirty, and grimy. That's what an amusement park was back in the day, back in the 1940s. So, uh, much like with Snow White, Walt Disney, um, he used much of his own money to finance what would become Disneyland in Southern California. And he was a smart guy in a lot of ways. Um, he had his brother Roy at the helm who co-labored with him and, and helped on the business side. So to offset the cost of building it, which was considerable, he struck a deal with uh, ABC TV Network, one of the big three networks, which at the time, I think, tended to be uh, in third place. Typically, CBS and NBC were kind of the bigger TV networks. And so he struck a deal with ABC to create a one-hour weekly TV show in return for ABC helping to finance the building of Disneyland. So that was a brilliant play, a brilliant strategy. So Disneyland opened on a Sunday in 1955. And much like everything else that Disney did, it became a huge success. Now, what's interesting is, you know, they were going to do a live television show of the opening of Disneyland in 1955. And as you know, with uh, TV, it was scheduled for months. But Disneyland wasn't quite ready that Sunday in 1955. So the asphalt had been newly laid and it hadn't quite hardened. And so, because of the heat of the day, and um, back then, I guess, uh, people dressed up, you had uh, dozens of women in heels who got their high heels stuck in the asphalt. <laughs> so, I mean, today, people tend not to dress up to go to a theme park. You just dress casually. But this is in the 50s. Life was a bit different. So, you know, we may think, of course, Disneyland would be a success. But again, much like with uh, Snow White and the label of Disney's Folly, uh, there were many experts that said, look, you can't charge admission. You just don't do that in the amusement park world. You, know, you pay per ride or per, you know, throw the balls at the, uh, at the pins and, you know, all those type of things. You can't charge admission. You, you've got to serve alcohol. I mean, come on. And uh, it's going to cost way too much to keep the place uh, clean. I mean, yeah, I mean that's not right. going to fly, you know. So Disney was never one to accept conventional wisdom. We can learn a lot from that. I mean, yeah, I believe in trusting the experts and all, but there are times when the so-called experts can be wrong, especially right. when you're th thinking about changing an industry, doing something new. So Walt Disney didn't stop there. So he died in 1966, but before he died, he had this vision of creating another theme park. But this time, it would be in Florida. And it came to be called Walt Disney World. So he and his brother began to uh, buy up thousands of acres of swampland out of, outside of Orlando. 
So eventually, uh, Walt Disney World would open in 1971. And around about that time, actually, his brother Roy uh, died, I think not that long uh, after. So you've got Disneyland, Walt Disney World. He just didn't stop dreaming. He just didn't stop imagining. Uh, now, it just you might seem, say like, oh, of course it would work. But at the time, he was doing something that most experts in the amusement park industry thought, this can't work. It doesn't make sense. People aren't going to pay a, a cover charge to get in. Right. And you're going to have it to be clean and safe and no alcohol. Uh, at least you can't buy liquor there. It makes no sense. But uh, when people said it makes no sense, Walt Disney sort of trusted on his convictions and his beliefs. So it's just, it's a remarkable story. Yeah. You mentioned uh, how it opened on July 17th, 1955. I pulled a uh, news clipping off of a, off of a website. Uh, they had 22,000 invited guests to come into Disneyland when it opened. A quote from one of the park employees was this, we've had to beat them off with a club. <laughs> that's how that's how thrilled people were to come to this place that he built. Again, that's proof in the pudding for what that he was right about his vision and, and the naysayers were all wrong. We've we've had to beat them off with a club. Surely not for real, but that was the kind of hoopla that was going around the opening of Disneyland, which uh, to this day is uh, is an enormously successful theme park. And frankly, has created a whole bunch of other theme parks. Theme parks are a big business now in the U.S. Along, his vision made a big change in the way people think of theme parks in, in this country. So we've talked about his vision. We've talked about the resilience of it. We talked about the success of it. All of those things, as we sort of mix them up in, in, in the batter of the cake that we're baking here on this episode of Beyond the Crucible, what lessons can we apply from all these examples that we've been talking about of Disney's perseverance in vision to our own lives? What can we take away from this, even if we feel like, and let's face it, folks, we probably all feel like we're no Walt Disney. What lessons can we take away and, and apply to our own lives? You know, I think probably one of the biggest ones is Walt Disney was never one to give up. Also, the lucky ra ra rabbit kind of uh, disaster happens. You know, Oswald was taken away from him. Yes, for many people, for him, that might have been one of the worst days of his life, especially because it wasn't just this distributor swindling Oswald um, away from him with some fine print and agreement, but he had a bunch of his animators. Some of them had been probably with him for years. They left. Talk about a betrayal. You come very close when you work with people on some, you know, uh, amazing you know, animation that had to have been tough. Yes, I'm sure he was angry and frustrated, uh, hurt, sad, but he didn't let that stop him from moving forward. He didn't, as we often say, he didn't hide under the covers and just sit there for years. Yeah, I'm sure he sort of was frustrated and angry. He had to have been, but he didn't give up. He found a way to bounce forward with the help of his creativity of his wife coming up with uh, Mickey Mouse. He just kept moving forward. I think the other aspect is Walt Disney teaches us to trust ourselves and our vision. You know, he anchored his vision in the things he was most passionate about, his gifting. He wanted to bring entertainment to families uh, and children. He loved telling stories. He had a vivid imagination. Um, he had, you know, that gift of storytelling, animation, imagination. So he knew 
that he was good at this. He believed right. in himself. He believed in his vision. And he wouldn't let naysayers just get him down. The conventional wisdom may be, yep, you know, Snow White's not going to work. It's in color. It's a full-length feature. Nobody's going to take that seriously. It's fun and amusing, but there's a, there's a story in there about loss and betrayal, uh, friendship, love. I mean, it's hard to put yourself back in an era where you never heard the story, but this wasn't just a, some simple cartoon with a lot of funny characters. Right. Nothing wrong with that. This was a lot deeper than, your, than cartoons at the time, but he, he believed in it. The other thing I think Walt Disney teaches us is that he took visions one vision at a time. We look back and say, well, I can never be a Walt Disney. Oh my gosh, I mean, Mickey Mouse, Snow White, you know, Walt Disney World, Disneyland. I mean, not to mention all of the full-length, uh, you know, regular movies that he made. I mean, I, I'm not Walt Disney. I mean, come on. I mean, that's just no way. Right. And I get that. I mean, few, who of us are? But remember, he took his visions one vision at a time. Back in the 1920s, his original vision was, you know, I think we can do a better job of telling stories through short black and white animated cartoons that are going to be in movie theaters. I think we can make it a bit better. That was a big vision at the time, but looking back, that doesn't seem like, oh my gosh, if I'm an animator, I could never make a cartoon that told a better story. That does, even for us today, feel like, you know, a not a not undoable vision. That feels like, okay, it may be a heavy lift, but you know, it's possible. Okay, put yourself in 1934. By that time, you have proven you know how to make successful animated cartoons. Mickey Mouse is a big success. So if you're Walt Disney in the early 30s, you're thinking about Snow White, yeah, it's a big leap, but it's based on a team of animators and based on a proven track record of making cartoons that people will come to see. It was a leap, but if you're Walt Disney at the time, put yourself in his shoes, it's not quite as impossible as it might seem today. You said something a couple times as you were telling the story here, and, and, and I wrote it down, uh, that Disney's reaction to some of these these things that he envisioned, some of these setbacks he ran into, uh, you used the phrase, I think we can fill in the blank. And really, when I think about that, that's that's a pretty good way to approach, right, bouncing back from a crucible and continuing to have resilience in the vision. Isn't it this I, having that I think we can attitude is, 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 is really pivotal for all of us as we go through our, our crucibles in our lives? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we believe here beyond the crucible, you don't stuff your feelings. As uh, one guest, I think it was Karen Austin, said, we don't you know, stuff them in the basement. Right. Yeah, you got to feel the feelings of betrayal, anger, sadness, loss, failure, setbacks, but you don't live in the basement. You don't dwell there. It's like, okay, having felt them for whatever time you feel is helpful, at a certain point, you got to get out of the basement. Okay, what's next? How do we move on from this? You know, it's not like Walt Disney was brooding for months after you know coming back from New York. He came up with Mickey Mouse on the train on the way back. Right. That's not months of brooding. Is that days? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, we don't know. It's not long. So, uh, I mean, that's sort of like superhuman Olympic level of uh, feeling your feelings, but not living in the basement for months. Did he live? Maybe he lived in the basement for a couple hours. I mean, it's just right. <laughs> that, yeah. that, that's the remarkable thing. And a few of us are quite at that Olympic level, but um, 
He just had that ability to move on and and trust his gut, trust his instincts in areas that, frankly, he wa- he did know a lot about animation and how to tell stories. It wasn't like, right. hey, I'm, gee, you know, I think I'm going to be, uh, you know, a new, I think I'm going to be a brain surgeon or something because right. this whole cartoon thing isn't working. That's not what he did. You know, he he knew his skills. He knew what he was passionate about. So you know, he made bets on himself in areas that he knew what he was talking about. So right. yeah, there is a nuance there, but it's just remarkable. He never let those things hold him back. You know, it's interesting, Warwick. When we were talking about this, um, and in your book you include this. There's a there's an interesting line um, from a Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers movie um, uh, from the I think the nineteen 19- 20s, 30s, that applies here, right? As we talk about what Walt Disney did when he hit crucibles, when he hit people who doubted him, when he was when he ran into naysayers. There's a there, there's a couple lines from this movie, a song people probably know. What are those lines, and how do they apply to to what Disney's did? Yeah, you know, Gary, I'm a big fan of old movies, and um, like many, I'm a big fan of Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers movies. They made a bunch of them in the 30s. And in 1936, they made this movie called Swing Time. And there's this really fun song called Pick Yourself Up. And in that song, there are these amazing lines, and the lines are, are are these. Nothing's impossible, I have found. For when my chin is off the ground, I pick myself up, dust myself off, start all over again. And that surely summarizes Walt Disney. Yes, you know, sometimes he felt he felt like his chin was, uh, you know, kind of near the ground, if you will, and he had to pick himself up and dust himself off. And he really did start all over again. That was, as we've been saying, exactly what he did with Oswald the Lucky Rabbit or facing the naysayers ahead of the launch of Snow White or Disneyland. Disney kept going in the face of setbacks. If we needed a theme song for Beyond the Crucible, <laughs> that that might apply. I mean, that's that's absolutely that's, that's the advice, right? That's the counsel. That's the wisdom that you share on the show every week. So I'm a big vote. That's my vote. My vote is for pick yourself up as the theme song of Beyond the Crucible. Um, as we uh, as we start wrapping here, Warwick, what would you say? We talked about a lot. We've talked about. Um, Maybe more than we talk about on these kinds of episodes, because Disney's resilience and his vision were just so multifaceted. Um, what are the big takeaways from Walt Disney's example of persevering to make a vision a reality? You know, what are some things that people can take with them and apply to their own lives? You know, I think trust your vision, trust yourself. Obviously, you've got to anchor your vision in what you're most passionate about. It's got to be grounded in your gifting and skills. Don't let the naysayers get you down. I'm a big believer in you know listening to experts, but when your gut says, you know, I have a vision, I think this will work. You know, the naysayers, the experts, they're not always right. Setbacks are going to happen, but as we've just been saying, you got to pick yourself up, dust yourself off, start all over again. Um, you've got to find a way forward after your setbacks and not let them define you. I think the other aspect for Walt Disney is that vision happens one dream at a time, one passion, one belief. And I think what we need to learn from Walt Disney is trust yourself, trust that vision, 
believe in it, pursue it, make it reality. Again, I want to make sure people are clear. This wasn't some vision that he knew nothing about. This was animation. This was telling stories. This was Walt Disney's genius. He knew how to tell stories. He knew how to tell stories through animation and then, you know, beyond. But he trusted himself. He trusted his gut. It was an experienced gut, if you will. But nonetheless, he trusted that vision. And he was always thinking, okay, so I accomplished that vision. Great, Snow White is a huge success. It's the early 40s. What's next? What's that next hill? What's that next dream? What's that next vision? Maybe Disneyland. Even after Disneyland. Okay, great. So what's next? He began thinking of Walt Disney World, which originally was sort of like the city of the future and now became, uh, it grew to be a multi-themed theme park with uh, Magic Kingdom, Epcot, Animal Kingdom. You know, it just grew. I guess the other aspect is that Walt Disney, he was other focused. He was Mm -hmm. focused on bringing joy, fun, and entertainment to families. That is the through line through everything Walt Disney did, whether it's Snow White, Mickey Mouse, full-length regular motion pictures, Disneyland, Walt Disney World. He truly did, I believe, live a life of significance. I mean, look at the joy and entertainment he's brought to millions of families throughout the world. You know, Walt Disney is sort of this uh, beloved um, franchise, if you will. I mean, it's brought so much fun and joy to so many. That's his legacy. The legacy of being able to have an imagination to tell stories, to just bring fun and entertainment and joy to so many. So to me, he definitely did live a life of significance. Yeah, for sure. You know, and not be intimidated by the the height depth, breadth of his vision, um, our own visions, if we follow the same way, like you said, pick yourself up, dust yourself off, start all over again. Theme song for Beyond the Crucible, I'm telling you. Um, <laughs> I have been in the communications business long enough to know uh, when the last word's been spoken on a subject. I'm, I'm saying this is the last word on the subject because in a second, I'm going to start singing Pick Yourself Up, and that's not going to be a blessing to anybody who's listening. So, folks, um, this will wrap up our um, our series within the show on stories from the book, Crucible Leadership. We'll turn the page next month to another story to help you turn the page and move beyond your crucible to a life of significance. See you then. If you enjoyed this episode, learned something from it, we invite you to engage more deeply with those of us at Beyond the Crucible. Visit our website, beyondthecrucible.com, to explore a plethora of offerings to help you transform what's been broken into breakthrough. A great place to start our free online assessment, which will help you pinpoint where you are on your journey beyond your crucible and to chart a course forward. See you next week.